Rogers and Black, honest men, when they went out there, after Mr. Starnes had talked to him, tell you that he was nervous. Why? Why do you say you were nervous? Because of the automobile ride? Because you looked into the face of this little girl, and it was such a gruesome sight? I tell you, gentlemen of the jury, and you know it, that this man Frank needed, when he had his wife go down to the door, somebody to sustain him. I tell you that this man Frank, when he had his wife telephone Darley to meet him at the factory, did it because he wanted somebody to sustain him. I tell you, gentlemen of the jury, that because he sent for Mr. Rosser, big of reputation and big of brain, dominating and controlling, so far as he can, everybody with whom he comes in contact, the reason he wanted him at the police headquarters and the reason he wanted Haas was because his conscience needed somebody to sustain him. And this man, Darley, we had to go into the enemy's camp to get the ammunition. But fortunately, I got on the job and sent the subpoena. And fortunately, Darley didn't know that he didn't have to come. And fortunately, he came and made the affidavit to which he stood up here as far as he had to because he couldn't get around it. In which Darley says, I noticed his nervousness. I noticed it upstairs. I noticed it downstairs. When they went to nail up the door. When he sat in my lap going down to the police headquarters, he shook and he trembled like an aspen leaf. I confronted him with the statement in which he had said, completely undone. He denied it, but said, almost undone. I confronted him with the statement that he had made and the affidavit to which he had sworn, in which he had used the language, completely unstrung. And now he changed it in your presence and said, almost completely unstrung. You tell me that this man that called for breakfast at home, as Durant called for Bromo Seltzer in San Francisco, this man who called for coffee at the factory, as Durant called for Bromo Seltzer in San Francisco, you tell me that this man Frank, the defendant in this case, explains his nervousness by reason of the automobile ride, the view of the body, as this man Durant in San Francisco tried to explain his condition by the inhalation of gas. You tell me, gentlemen of the jury, that these explanations are going to wipe out the nervousness that you know could have been produced by but one cause, and that is the consciousness of an infamous crime that had been committed. Old Newt Lee says that when he went back there that afternoon, he found that inside door locked a thing that never had been found before he got there at four o'clock, a thing that he never had found. Old Newtley says that Frank came out of his office and met him out there by the desk, the place where he always went, and said, All right, Mr. Frank, and that Frank had always called him in and given him his instructions. But Newtley says that night, when he went into the cellar, he found the light that had always burned brightly, turned back, so that it was burning just about like a lightning bug. 
you tell me that old Jim Conley felt the necessity to have turned that light down? I tell you that that light was turned down, gentlemen, by that man, Leo M. Frank, after he went down there Saturday afternoon, when he discovered that Conley wasn't coming back to burn the body, to place the notes by the body that Conley had written, and he turned it down in the hope that the body wouldn't be discovered by Newt Lee during that night. Monday evening, Harry Scott is sent for, the Pinkerton man. And it didn't require any affidavit to hold old Scott down to the truth. Though after my experience with that man Darley, I almost trembled in my boots for fear this man Scott, one of the most material witnesses, although the detective of this defendant's company, might also throw me down. Scott says this man Frank, when he went there Monday afternoon, after he had anxiously phoned Schiff to see old man Sig Montag and get Sig Montag's permission, had phoned him three times. Scott says that he squirmed in his chair continually, crossed and uncrossed his legs, rubbed his face with his hand, sighed, twisted, and drew long, deep breaths. After going to the station Tuesday morning, just before his arrest, if he ever was arrested, just before his detention, at another time altogether from the time that Darley speaks of, Darley, the man for whom he sent, Darley, the man who is next to him in power, Darley, the man that he wanted to sustain his nerve, Scott, your own detective, says that he was nervous and pale, and that when he saw him at the factory, his eyes were large and glaring. Tuesday morning, Wagoner, sent up there to watch him from across the street, says before the officers came to get him, he could see Frank pacing his office inside, through the windows, and that he came to the office window and looked out at him twelve times in thirty minutes, that he was agitated and nervous on the way down to the station. I want to read you here an excerpt from the speech of a man by the name of Hammond. When prosecuting a fellow by the name of Dunbar, for the murder of two little children. It explains in language better than I can command why all this nervousness. It was because the mighty secret of the feet was in his heart. It was the overwhelming consciousness of guilt striving within him. It was nature overburdened with a terrible load. It was a conscience striving beneath a tremendous crushing weight. It was fear remorse and terror. Remorse for the past and terror for the future. Spectral shadows were flirting before him. The specter of the dead girl, the cord, the blood, arose. The specter of this trial, of the prison, of the gallows and the grave of infamy. Guilt, gentlemen of the jury, forces itself into speech and conduct, and is its own betrayer. Mr. Rosser says that once a thief, always a thief, and eternally damned. Holy Writ, in giving the picture of the death of Christ on the cross, says that when he suffered that agony, he said to the thief, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. And unless our religion is a fraud and a farce, 
If it teaches anything, it is that man, though he may be a thief, may be rehabilitated and enjoy a good character and the confidence of the people among whom he lives. And this man, Dalton, according to the unimpeached testimony of these people who have known him in DeKalb and Fulton since he left that crowd back yonder where he was a boy and probably wild and did things that were wrong, they tell you that today he is a man of integrity, notwithstanding the fact that he is sometimes tempted to step aside with a woman who has fallen so low as Daisy Hopkins. Did we sustain him? By more witnesses by far than you brought here to impeach him, and by witnesses of this community, witnesses that you couldn't impeach to save your life. Did we sustain him? We not only sustained him by proof of general good character, but we sustained him by the evidence of this man, C.T. Maynard, an unimpeached and unimpeachable witness, who tells you, not when Newt Lee was there, during the three weeks that Newt Lee was there, but that on a Saturday afternoon in June or July 1912, he saw with his own eyes this man Dalton go into that pencil factory with a woman. Corroboration of Conley? Of course, it's corroboration. The very fact, gentlemen of the jury, that these gentlemen conducting this case failed absolutely and ingloriously even to attempt to sustain this woman, Daisy Hopkins, is another corroboration of Conley. But ah, Mr. Rosser said he would give so much to know who it was that dressed this man Conley up, this man about whom he fusses, having been put in the custody of the police force of the city of Atlanta. Why, if you had wanted to have known, and if you had used one half the effort to ascertain that fact, that you used when you sent somebody down yonder, I forget the name of the man, to Walton County to impeach this man, Dalton, you could have found it out. And I submit that the man that did it, whoever he was, the man who had the charity in his heart to dress that Negro up, the Negro that he would dress in a shroud and send to his grave, the man that did that, to bring him into the presence of this court deserves not the condemnation, but the thanks of this jury. Let's see what Mr. William Smith, a man employed to defend this Negro Conley, set up in response to the rule issued by his honor, Judge Rome. And let's see now if they are not all sufficient reasons why Conley should not have been delivered into the custody of the police force of Atlanta, though they are no better, but just as good as the sheriff of this county. Respondent Jim Conley, through his attorney, admits that he is now held in custody under orders of this court at the police prison of the city of Atlanta, having been originally held in the prison of Fulton County, also under order of this court, the cause of said commitment by this court of respondent being the allegation that respondent is a material witness in the above case, that of the state against Leo M. Frank, in behalf of the state, and it is desired to ensure the presence of respondent at the trial of the above case. So he couldn't get away in order to hold him. Respondent admits that he is now at the city police prison at his own request and instance, and through the advice and counsel of his attorney. 
Respondent shows to the court that the city police prison is so arranged and so officered that respondent is absolutely safe as to his physical welfare from any attack that might be made upon him. That he is so confined that his cell is a solitary one, there being no one else even located in the cell block with him. That the key to his cell block and the cell of respondent is always in the possession of a sworn, uniformed officer of the law. That under the instruction of Chief of Police Beavers, said sworn officers are not allowed to permit anyone to approach. Judge Roan did it. No reflection on the sheriff, but with the friends of this man Frank pouring in there at all hours of the night, offering him sandwiches and whiskey and threatening his life, things that this sheriff, who was as good as the chief of police but no better, couldn't guard against because of the physical structure of the jail. Jim Conley asked, and his honor granted the request, that he be remanded back into the custody of the honorable men who would manage the police department of the city of Atlanta. Mr. Rosser. No, that's a mistake. That isn't correct. Your Honor discharged him from custody. He said that under that petition, Your Honor sent him back to the custody where you had him before. And that isn't true. Your Honor discharged him, vacated the order. That's what you did. Mr. Dorsey. Here's an order committing him down there first. You are right about that. I'm glad you are right one time. Mr. Rosser. That's more than you have ever been. Mr. Dorsey. No matter what the outcome of the order may have been, the effect of the order passed by his honor, Judge Roan, who presides in this case, was to remand him into the custody of the police of the city of Atlanta. Mr. Rosser. I dispute that. That isn't the effect of the order passed by his honor. The effect of the order passed by his honor was to turn him out, and they went through the farce of turning him out on the street and carrying him right back. That isn't the effect of your honor's judgment. In this sort of case, we ought to have the exact truth. The court. This is what I concede to be the effect of that ruling. I passed this order upon the motion of state's counsel, first is my recollection, and by consent of Conley's attorney. Mr. Rosser, I'm asking only for the effect of the last one. The court. On motion of state's counsel, consented to by Conley's attorney, I passed the first order. That's my recollection. Afterwards, it came up on motion of the solicitor general. I vacated both orders, committing him to the jail and also the order, don't you understand, transferring him. That left it as though I had never made an order. That's the effect of it. Mr. Rosser. Then the effect was that there was no order out at all? The court. No order putting him anywhere. Mr. Rosser. Which had the effect of putting him out? The court. Yes, that's the effect, that there was no order at all. Mr. Dorsey. First, there was an order committing him to the common jail of Fulton County. Second, he was turned over to the custody of the police of the city of Atlanta by an order of Judge L.S. Roan. Third, he was released from anybody's custody, and except for the determination of the police force of the city of Atlanta, he would have been a liberated man 
when he stepped into this court to swear, or he would have been spirited out of the state of Georgia, so his damaging evidence couldn't have been adduced against this man. But yet you say Conley is impeached. You went thoroughly into this man Conley's previous life. You found out every person for whom he had worked, and yet this lousy, disreputable Negro is unimpeached by any man except somebody that's got a hand in the till of the National Pencil Company, unimpeached as to general bad character, except by the hirelings of the National Pencil Company. And yet you would have this jury, in order to turn this man loose, override the facts of this case and say that Conley committed this murder when all you have ever been able to dig up against him is disorderly conduct in the police court. Is Conley sustained? Abundantly. Our proof of general bad character, the existence of such character as can reasonably be supposed to cause one to commit an act like we charge, our proof of general bad character, I say, sustains Jim Conley. Our proof of general bad character as to lasciviousness, not even denied by a single witness, sustains Jim Conley. Your failure to cross-examine and develop the source of information of these girls put upon the stand by the state, these hair-brained fanatics, as Mr. Arnold called them, without rhyme or reason, sustains Jim Conley. Your failure to cross-examine our character witnesses with reference to this man's character for lasciviousness sustains Jim Conley. His relations with Miss Rebecca Carson, the lady on the fourth floor, going into the ladies' dressing room even in broad daylight and during working hours, as sustained by Miss Kitchens. His relations with Miss Rebecca Carson, who is shown to have gone into the ladies' dressing room even in broad daylight and during work hours by witnesses whose names I can't call right now, sustains Jim Conley. Your own witness, Miss Jackson, who says that this libertine and rake came when these girls were in there reclining and lounging after they had finished their piecework and tells of the sardonic grin that lit his countenance. Sustains Jim Conley. Miss Kitchens, the lady from the fourth floor that, in spite of the repeated assertion made by Mr. Arnold, you didn't produce, and her account of this man's conduct when he came in there on these girls, whom he should have protected, and when he should have been the last man to go in that room, sustains Jim Conley. And Miss Jackson's assertion that she heard of three or four other instances, and that complaint was made to the four ladies in charge, sustains Jim Conley. Darley and Mattie Smith, as to what they did even on the morning of Saturday, April 26th, even going into the minutest details, sustain Jim Conley. McCrary, the old Negro that you praised so highly, the man that keeps his till filled by money paid by the National Pencil Company, as to where he put his stack of hay and the time of day he drew his pay, sustains Jim Conley. Montine Stover, as to the easy-walking shoes she wore when she went up into this man's Frank's room at the very minute he was back there in the metal department with this poor little unfortunate girl, sustains Jim Conley. Montine Stover, when she tells you that she found nobody in that office, sustains Jim Conley. When he says that he heard little Mary Fagan go into the office, 
heard the footsteps of the two as they went to the rear. He heard the scream, and he saw the dead body, because Montine says there was nobody in the office. And Jim says she went up immediately after Mary had gone to the rear. Lemmy Quinn, your own dear Lemmy, as to the time he went up and went down into the streets with the evidence of Mrs. Freeman and Hall, sustains Jim Conley. Frank's statement that he would consult his attorneys about Quinn's statement that he had visited him in his office sustains Jim Conley. Dalton, sustained as to his life for the last 10 years, here in this community and in DeKalb, when he stated that he had seen Jim watching before on Saturdays and holidays, sustains Jim Conley. Daisy Hopkins' awful reputation and the statement of Jim that he had seen her go into that factory with Dalton and down that scuttle hole to the place where that cot is shown to have been, sustains Jim Conley. The blood on the second floor, testified to by numerous witnesses, sustains Jim Conley. The appearance of the blood, the physical conditions of the floor when the blood was found Monday morning, sustains Jim Conley. The testimony of Holloway, which he gave in the affidavit before he appreciated the importance, coupled with the statement of Boots Rogers that that elevator box was unlocked, sustains Jim Conley. Ivy Jones, the man who says he met him in close proximity to the pencil factory on the day this murder was committed, the time he says he left that place, sustains Jim Conley. Albert McKnight, who testified as to the length of time that this man Frank remained at home and the fact that he hurried back to the factory, sustains Jim Conley. The repudiated affidavit made to the police in the presence of Craven and Pickett, of Manola McKnight, the affidavit which George Gordon, the lawyer, with the knowledge that he could get a habeas corpus and take her within 30 minutes out of the custody of the police, but which he sat there and allowed her to make, sustains Jim Conley. The use of that cord, found in abundance, to choke this girl to death, sustains Jim Conley. The existence of the notes alone sustains Jim Conley because no Negro ever in the history of the race, after having perpetrated rape or robbery, ever wrote a note to cover up the crime. The note paper on which it is written, paper found in abundance on the office floor and near the office of this man Frank, sustains Jim Conley. The diction of the notes. This Negro did this. And old Jim, throughout his statement, says, I done. Sustains Jim Conley. Mr. Rosser. I have looked the record up, and Jim Conley says, I did it, time and time again. He said, I disremember whether I did or didn't. He says, I did it. Mr. Dorsey. They would have to prove that record before I would believe it. Mr. Rosser. He says, time and time again, I disremember whether I did or not. He says, I did it. Page after page, sometimes three times on a page. I've got the record, too. Of course, if the Almighty God was to say it, you would deny it. Mr. Dorsey. Who reported it? Mr. Rosser, pages 496. 
Mr. Rosser here read a list of page numbers containing the statement referred to. Mr. Arnold. I want to read the first one before he caught himself on page 946. I want to read the statement. Mr. Dorsey. Who reported it? That's what I want to know. Mr. Arnold. This is the official report, and it's the correct report, taken down by the official stenographer, and he said, Now, when the lady comes, I'll stamp like I did before. I says, All right, I'll do just as you say, and I did. Mr. Dorsey. He's quoting Frank here. And he says, Now, when the lady comes, I'll stamp like I did. Mr. Arnold. I says, all right, I'll do just as you say, and I did as he said. He has got it both ways. I did it, and I done it. You can find it both ways. Mr. Dorsey. The jury heard that examination and the cross-examination of Jim Conley, and every time it was put to him, he says, I done it. Mr. Rosser. And I assert that's not true. The stenographer took it down, and he took it down correctly. Mr. Dorsey. I'm not bound by his stenographer. Mr. Rosser. I know. You are not bound by any rule of right in the universe. The court. If there is any dispute about the correctness of this report, I will have the stenographer to come here. Mr. Perry. I reported 1 to 31 myself, and I think I can make a statement that will satisfy Mr. Dorsey. The shorthand character for did is very different from done. There's no reason for a reporter confusing those two. Now, at the bottom of this page, I see I reported it myself, and that was what he said. Quoting, All right, I'll do just as you say, and I did as he said. Now, as I say, my characters for did and done are very different and shouldn't be confused. No reason for their being confused. The court. Well, is that reported or not correctly? Mr. Perry. That was taken as he said it and written out as he said it. Mr. Dorsey. Let it go, then. I'll trust the jury on it. Maybe he did, in certain instances, say that he did so-and-so. But you said in your argument that if there is anything in the world a Negro will do, it is to pick up the language of the man for whom he works. And while I'll assert that there are some instances you can pick out in which he used that word, that there are other instances you might pick showing that he used that word, I done. And they know it. All right, leave the language, take the context. These notes say, as I suggested the other day, that she was assaulted as she went to make water. And the only closet known to Mary, and the only one that she would ever have used, is the closet on the office floor, where Conley says he found the body, and her body was found right on the route that Frank would pursue from his office to that closet, right on back also to the metal room. The fact that this note states that a Negro did it by himself shows a conscious effort on the part of somebody to exclude and limit the crime to one man. And this fact sustains Conley. Frank even, 
in his statement sustains him as to his time of arrival Saturday morning at the factory, as to the time of the visit to Montauk's, as to the folder which Conley says Frank had in his hands, and Frank in his statement says that he had the folder. Conley is sustained by another thing. This man, Harry White, according to your statement, got $2. Where is the paper? Where is the entry on any book showing that Frank ever entered it up on that Saturday afternoon when he waited for Conley and his mind was occupied with the consideration of the problem as to what he should do with the body? Schiff waited until the next week and would have you believe there was some little slip that was put in a cash box showing that this $2 was given White and that slip was destroyed. Listen to this. Arthur White borrowed $2 from me in advance on his wages. When we spend, of course, we credit it. There was a time when we paid out money, we would write it down on the book, and we found it was much better for us to keep a little voucher book and let each and every person sign for money they got. Let each and every person sign for money they got, says Frank in his statement. And we have not only this record, but this record on the receipt book. And notwithstanding that you kept a book, and you found it better to keep this little voucher book, and let each and every person sign for money they got, notwithstanding the fact that you say that you kept a book for express and kerosene and every other conceivable purpose for which money was appropriated, you fail and refuse, because you can't, produce the signature of White, or the entry in any book made by Frank, showing that this man White ever got that money, except the entry made by this man Schiff sometime during the week thereafter. I tell you, gentlemen of the jury, that the reason that Frank didn't enter up or didn't take the receipt from White about the payment of that money was because his mind and conscience were on the crime that he had committed. This expert in bookkeeping, this Cornell graduate, this man who checks and rechecks the cash. You tell me that if things were normal, that he would have given out to that man White this $2 and not have taken a receipt, or not have made an entry himself on some book going to show it? I tell you there's only one reason why he didn't do it. He is sustained by the evidence in this case and the statement of Frank that he had relatives in Brooklyn. The time that Frank says that he left that factory sustains old Jim. When old Jim Conley was on the stand, Mr. Rosser put him through a good deal of questioning with reference to some fellow by the name of Mincy. Where is Mincy? Echo answers, where? Either Mincy was a myth, or Mincy was such a diabolical perjurer that this man knew that it would nauseate the stomach of a decent jury to have him produced. Where is Mincy? And if you weren't going to produce Mincy, why did you parade it here before this jury? The absence of Mincy is a powerful fact that goes to sustain Jim Conley, because if Mincy could have contradicted Jim Conley, or could have successfully fastened an admission on old Jim that he was connected in any way with this crime, depend upon it. You would have produced him if you had to comb the state of Georgia with a fine-tooth comb from Rabun Gap to Tybee Light. Gentlemen, Every act of that defendant proclaims him guilty. Gentlemen, every word of that defendant proclaims him responsible for the death of this little factory girl. Gentlemen, every circumstance in this case proves him guilty of this crime.
extraordinary? Yes, but nevertheless true. Just as true as Mary Fagan is dead. She died a noble death, not a blot on her name. She died because she wouldn't yield her virtue to the demands of her superintendent. I have no purpose, and have never had from the beginning in this case, that you ought to have, as an honest, upright citizen of this community. In the language of Daniel Webster, I desire to remind you that when a jury, through whimsical and unfounded scruples, suffers the guilty to escape, they make themselves answerable for the augmented danger to the innocent. Your Honor, I have done my duty. I have no apology to make. Your Honor, so far as the state is concerned, may now charge this jury. This jury who have sworn that they were impartial and unbiased. This jury who, in this presence, have taken the oath that they would well and truly try the issue formed on this bill of indictment between the state of Georgia and Leo M. Frank, charged with the murder of Mary Fagan. And I predict, may it please your honor, that under the law that you give in charge and under the honest opinion of the jury of the evidence produced, there can be but one verdict. And that is, we, the jury, find the defendant, Leo M. Frank, guilty, guilty, guilty. You've been listening to our continuing audiobook series featuring the best writing from the American Mercury on the Leo Frank case. Be with us next time when we will continue with the next installment of the American Mercury on Leo Frank.